0: This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found The First Mile. Welcome to The First Mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart, in which we learn how travel, adventure and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world.
1: So in this episode, I interview my co-host, Mr. Ash Bardwaj. We talk about how to launch a career in adventure travel, why you should give things a try, and this includes Ash's bizarre stint as a cowboy, why adventure with purpose is important, and how to deal with your own inner critic. Now, Ash is a journalist and filmmaker who uses travel to explore complex topics. He's produced telly for broadcasters like the BBC, Nat Geo and Channel 4. He's written for all the major UK newspapers and regularly reports for Radio 4. He's also the founder of the video production company Digital Dandy and his podcast series Edgelands reached number one in Apple's iTunes Travel and Places podcast chart. So if you enjoy this episode, please could you do a couple of things for us to help others find the first mile. Firstly, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review or rating on your podcast app. It really doesn't have to be long, but it's very appreciated. But for now, please enjoy this conversation with Ash Bardwaj. So Ash, what you've done in your career has been really fascinating and I'd love to dig a little bit deeper on how you got there and the techniques that you used. I mean, seriously, before I get into the the detail of how you got into adventure travel journalism, can we just touch on the cowboy thing? Like how? Why? What?
0: Uh, Well, I was a terrible cowboy. I had these three things I wanted to do when I was at university before I got a proper job. One was to be a cowboy. Another one was to play rugby in New Zealand and another one was to become a ski instructor. And I moved to Australia. I had some friends that worked on what new friends that had a farm down in Tasmania. And they moved up to Brisbane to stay with some mates of mine from doing a ski season. And they told me about a racehorse sale event that goes on every year. It's like a, a cattle market, but for racehorses. They said, well, that's probably a good place to go and learn how to ride a horse or meet people who can get you into some more horse riding so I turned up there and this guy gave me a job on his farm I was helping out handling yearlings which are new horses about a year old which is what are then sold at these markets every year and I didn't spend a lot of time on the back of a horse and then I think not too far in I actually fell off a horse that was galloping um, on some sort of gritted dirt roads oh man ouch uh, yeah i i spent a week in hospital having my hand put back together so i had a very unsuccessful career as a cowboy
1: do you have a gnarly scar to show for it
0: i've got a pretty cool scar i'm pretty happy with it okay. i i hear chicks dig scar so you know <laughs> one of the great benefits of falling off a racehorse
1: well that, that's a hell of a story <laughs> um but ash how did you at what point did you realize do you know what i can make this love for travel a career
0: It was pretty late, and I don't think I really realised how much I loved travel until until I was about 16. I mean, my first real experience of travel was when I was 16. I'd moved to Windsor Boys School, which is a state school in Windsor, local secondary school. And they were doing a rugby tour to Australia, New Zealand, and the Cook Islands. And my mum had travelled to New Zealand to see some family when she was about 20, and had always loved it and always said I always encouraged us to one day go to New Zealand. So when she heard that this rugby tour was happening, she got a second job as a cleaner to save up to pay my costs of going to New Zealand. And my part of the bargain was I had to get onto the rugby team. I was a terrible rugby player. I'm still a bad rugby player and- Better than
1: your horse riding?
0: Well, yes. I mean, I think I've been injured slightly less playing rugby than I have horse (laughs) riding. No hospital visits yet in rugby. And I got onto the second team as a prop, which basically means I was just fat and had to lean. That was basically (laughs) my job as a prop. Uh, So fortunately, I could do that. And I went on the rugby tour to Australia, New Zealand and the Cook Islands. And I think I relished it in a way that I hadn't expected places that you think are just going to be a bit like England but with funny accents that actually have very interesting cultural differences and New Zealand in particular because the Māori culture is so integrated into their national identity and I loved it and I really loved speaking to people about it, learning about it, seeing that culture alive and vivid that's what inspired me to make travel a bigger part of my life
1: so was it a very conscious thing then, the transition from taking it as like a thing that you enjoyed doing for fun to like, how do I make this a career?
0: Absolutely not. It wasn't conscious at all. I, when I was at university, I t- did philosophy as a degree, which means I graduated with a qualification in being unemployed.
1: Did you figure out the meaning of life though?
0: Definitely not, Pip. I'm still very much on that path. So uh, You, you if,
1: and me both, Ash. <laughs>
0: um, no, so all, all I had was no meaning of life, but a qualification for unemployment and in my second year I did one of those career questionnaire things where you type in do you like being outside how do you like your steak cooked what's your favorite color and it spits out an answer that is the future for you what what you will do and I think I got prison officer teacher and army officer training I think it was sponsored by the Home Office, this uh, particular career test thing. So probably a bit of an indication that there was a bit of bias in what it suggested as a career. And I started to follow the path of becoming an Army officer in the regular Army. And it was around the time of the Iraq War, so I decided that actually I needed to rethink this and go and do some other things before I ended up going to do it. And that's where these three ideas are becoming a... Ski instructor, cowboy, and playing rugby in New Zealand popped up. So I went off to do those things. And it was whilst in New Zealand that I started to write blogs and emails about what I was doing. So that was my first bit of storytelling of travel, sending those back. And that got a positive response. But even then, I didn't think of it as a career. I was just enjoying it. Um, I started to develop a documentary idea at the recommendation of a friend who was a TV producer. And didn't really have a huge desire to do anything except tell that story and entertain. Uh, But it was, I think it was that combination of those things. It really was the genesis of what eventually ended up as my travel career.
1: And what was that story?
0: Well, my father passed away when I was 21. Uh, He was Indian. uh, My mum was English. But I was never particularly close to him. All the same, when he passed away, I discovered that it was my duty to take his ashes to India to immerse them in the River Ganges, which is Hindu tradition. And I kind of turned that into a chance to, I guess, build that relationship with my heritage, for it to start to mean something to me. Because I was raised by my mum in Windsor, and she did her best to take me to spend time with my Indian family. But I didn't speak any Hindi. I didn't know the name of any of the 330 million Hindu gods. And I couldn't really have told you what Diwali was. So going to take Daddash's to India was a reason for me to learn about Hindu ritual and get an insight into that culture.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, and that shaped kind of thinking going forward? or
0: I guess so, actually. Um, I think it probably did. The idea that you go to places with a bit of a purpose... And maybe a question to uncover or a mission to explore. Uh, Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. That was probably what ended up creating that curiosity that I've taken into travel journalism since then.
1: And was that sort of the first thing then that led you to think, okay, I can make money out of this?
0: No, I I think the money making element was accidental because what I was mostly doing at that time was working in Switzerland over the winters as a ski instructor actually ended up spending most of my time looking after a billionaire chalet or being drunk in ski. That was my, my main thing. But I, I went there to be a ski instructor. So I've, I eventually uh, achieved that task as well, of my original three from university. And it was in the summers when I came back that I was trying to get into television production, learning how to tell stories through, through documentary, inspired by that direction I'd been sent on by that friend who told me to turn that into... Into your idea into a TV documentary, so I was very much looking at just storytelling. Um, I got better at doing video production. Ended up working at a PR company that were doing the PR for Walking with the Wounded, which was an expedition to Everest with wounded soldiers. And I started to do PR video for their sponsors, which was Glenfiddich. And I went to Mount Everest to base camp, filmed the whole thing to make a video for them, and. I also had to write on behalf of the PR team an article that ended up going in one of the free papers in London. And it was then that I realized, I can tell my stories about travel that I'm doing and people, newspapers, magazines will will pick them up. A friend of mine from Windsor had got me writing stuff for online magazines about adventure, but not about my own travels. And then a friend of mine from university, a guy called Leveson Wood, ended up setting up a expedition company called Secret Compass. And at one of the events where they were promoting Secret Compass, I went along to give him a hand and listen to a talk by Nick Crane. Nick Crane is a British geographer. He's written a bunch of fascinating books, knows a lot about cartography and he presents a TV program called Coast. So I went to go and see him talk and I went up to him at the end and said, Nick, I really enjoyed that talk. I really like the work you do. And he said, well, what do you do? Are you into travel? Is that what you're doing? Well, actually, I'm taking my dad's ashes to India um, after going to Everest on this expedition with a charity called Walking with the Wounded. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to Haridwar to take my dad's ashes back. He goes, that's a fascinating story. Let me introduce you to somebody. And we went and met another one of his colleagues who happened to be the deputy editor of travel at the Telegraph newspaper. So I got chatting to that guy. His name is Michael Kerr. And He liked the idea and said, would you write that as an article for me? So I didn't follow the traditional journalism route, but I'd I'd got a body of work already, which obviously Mike wanted to see uh, before he would commission me. And that was through doing all the online stuff completely for free and all the blogs and things because I enjoyed doing it. And that was my first commission as an article. In terms of making a career out of it, I still struggle with actually the income side of things. I think... The travel journalism of the travel writing and the adventure journalism probably takes up most of my time, but probably gives me about thirty percent of my income. Much of it comes from public speaking and I've still got a video production company doing marketing videos and event videos in and around London. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the career bit, still not quite there yet as an income.
1: Working on it. Because it sounds like you were very much a sort of self-starter, Ash. You just went out, tried these things, pitched around. You had a little bit of luck along the way. But looking back overall, to anyone listening who can think, okay, what can Ash teach us? Did you have any steps that you kind of, looking back now, you realise they probably were quite helpful along the way. And what can our listeners learn from, I guess, your mistakes in a way and things you wish you knew when you started out?
0: Yeah, and on each of those things that I was doing there, like when I met Nick Crane and then met Mike and got that first commission for the Telegraph, I didn't think, "Ah, oh, this is the step that will lead me to eventually doing a travel podcast with Pip Stewart." <laughs> I never had a strategy like that. But looking back, you're right. I can see certain things that did make a difference, and I started to do some work in summer schools. And I do go back. I was a school teacher for a while, and whenever I can, I like to go and do talks at schools, because when I was at school, I didn't realise that these careers were even possible, let alone the route that you would take to get there. And so mapping it back, I realised that there's about seven steps. The first one is picking a field of interest that you'd like to have a career in. Second is starting to read around it, learn about it, reading books, watching documentaries, watching YouTube channels, starting to write about it or write blogs about it, about your own experience go to events in order to meet people in and around that career that you want to do, start doing work for free in and around that career, and then pitching for that work so that you actually end up getting paid for that work. And in hindsight, that's the route that I took in order to do it, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you that was the path I was taking at the time. So I, I think within a field like this, an industry or career where it's about what you've done and who you know, and your portfolio that really matters. So there's three key things you're trying to get. Those steps that I took, the three key things you're trying to get are skills, a network, and a portfolio. Mm -hmm. You build a portfolio through doing work and you build skills through doing work. You build a network by going to events and pushing it out.
1: Yeah, because I think when people hear the word network, they often assume it's a world of privilege and all of that. But actually, what I found, social media has made that so much more democratic. And I've spent a good number of times like stalking people on Twitter, like editors and things like that.
0: You're right, networking is quite a wanky word. And it's also, I think, quite easily marginalising. Because if you're not somebody that's extroverted and you're not somebody that is willing to go out and speak to strangers, then you're going to find it hard to do that. My dad owned a bar, a restaurant when i was a kid so when we were young my sister and i used to like chat to the waiters and the waitresses and we'd be in that environment all the time
1: explains everything ash (laughs) (laughs) that's all i needed to know
0: (laughs) this is is why i'm so happy in a bar and a pub Pip. um so that's ostracizing if you're not good at that but what twitter allows you to do it allows you to network with people without having to actually speak to them in person so i would say if somebody's thinking, if they're, if they're a bit of an introvert, how do I do networking? Twitter is a really good way to do it. And I've made some great contacts just by seeing stuff pop up on Twitter. Um, I've recently started to go to a podcasting event because um, our great producer, Hannah, had posted something about the Rise and Shine audio network and then through that, met some people through that. And now I've learned a whole load in that area. And so I think it's using social media where you can.
1: So Ash, do you have any sort of philosophies you think about when you're approaching this career?
0: I think there's, yeah, there are There's three philosophies that I realise, again, with hindsight, are really useful. And I've learned them through experience or mistake. The first one is, I learned it off a guy called Che Blythe. Che Blythe had been a sergeant in the army. And one day his captain walked in and said to him, Jay, I need a man to raid the Atlantic with me." Uh, so probably would not <laughs> called him actually Chase. Sound like that? Chad and Blythe. Uh, if you're a captain in the army in the 1950s or 60s, you probably spoke like right. that.
1: Fair then,
0: Son Blythe, bring me a man to raid the Atlantic with me. And Chay Blythe said, "Oh, what's that? I'll get one for you." And then the next day, Chay Blythe said, "I'll come and raid the Atlantic with you." And when they turn up to do the press launch, because you need a big press event whenever you're doing a big expedition. Uh, the captain, John Ridgway, was taken ill with food poisoning. So it was just Che Bly sat in the rowing boat in the harbour. And the press said, can you row around a bit in a circle so I can get some photos? And he said, no, I can't. And they're like, why? He said, well, I don't know how to row. <laughs> like, you don't know how to row. You're about to row the Atlantic. Like, Talk about well,
1: going in at the deep end.
0: Well, quite literally at the deep end. <laughs> um, and um, what he said was pretty much along those lines. He said, well, you know, it's going to take us a couple of months. I'm sure I'll work it out on the way. And and he calls that moment the opportunistic second, the moment when John Ridgway said to him, do you know anyone who will row the Atlantic? And it's that moment where you think, if I say yes to this, it will change my life. It's that moment where you see somebody you fancy and you go up and ask them for their number or you see a job offer and then you apply for it. And that takes you in a direction you never would have gone otherwise. So seizing the opportunistic second, which is recognizing those moments that might take your life in a different direction and having the courage to seize them. Uh, the second is give things a go when I was at university I tried acting I took up French I did capoeira I tried skiing now I tried capoeira twice and then gave up because that required gymnastic coordination something I definitely don't have the acting was really useful because I do public speaking now so the skills I learned they carried on The French turned out to be really useful when I ended up having to run a chalet in Switzerland and all the soft spoke French. And the skiing, I tried it once. It was the first time I ever tried skiing. It cost me about 150 quid. And then that became my career. I became a ski instructor, lived in New Zealand and then lived in Switzerland. And that opened up all these other doors for me. So give things a try because you never know which one will stick with you. And then the third one is just turn up because I'm pretty hard on myself and I often find myself not feeling good enough at things. And it's very easy to turn up a, th- a thing and think, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not good enough. Mm,
1: imposter syndrome, right?
0: It, imposter syndrome. But if you just keep turning up, you will get good enough eventually. That's what rugby was like for me when my mum paid for me to go to New Zealand. First time I turned up at rugby training, I couldn't catch a ball. But I just kept turning up and eventually I learned how to catch a ball, learned how to pass a ball, learned how to ruck, learned how to scrum. So if you just keep turning up at something, eventually you will get good enough.
1: Mm. And did you find your confidence grows? Because I think so many of us put on this front, don't we? That we're we're brave or we're this or we're that. And actually inside, we're all kind of slightly gibbering wrecks and like very unsure of what we're doing. But I suppose the more you practice something, the more confident you become.
0: That's definitely true. But I think it's also okay to accept that you might always have imposter syndrome and therefore you just need to talk to people about it. You'll find some top sportsmen feel that they are like, I'm not really sure how I managed to make it into this team. Or journalists or presenters or experts in a field I think that exists everywhere so even though you will gain confidence in your skill set and your ability to perform and do things I think sometimes well for many people that lack of self-confidence may always remain and it's okay if that is there just find a support network that helps you with that if you can.
1: Mm -hmm. And talking of confidence I think going to a new place especially if you're on your own sometimes takes a lot of confidence do you have any travel tips for people traveling somewhere for the first time?
0: Um, One way to overcome the confidence or lack of confidence about going to somewhere on your own for the first time is give yourself a purpose when you go there. And I think there's three different reasons to go travelling other than just to go and relax. One is to follow your heroes. So I did a journey around Albania following in the footsteps of this World War Two expedition And that gave me a reason to go and something to do, something to investigate whilst I was there. The new Iron Curtain, similarly, it was getting an insight into what are the drivers and potentials of conflict on the Russia-European border and what's it like for the people living there. And then that gives you a reason to go, something to follow. Second one is to go for your hobbies. I went to New Zealand to play rugby. And by playing rugby in a local rugby club with a bunch of guys that were farmers or builders, I got an insight into New Zealand culture that I wouldn't have had if I'd have just hung out with loads of Brits abroad. And that was invaluable because I saw so much of the country and got an insight into Kiwi culture. So go for your hobbies. Um, And then look for the unexpected. When I was traveling the Nile with Levwood, we were in Northern Uganda, this incredibly remote region of Uganda, some places were three days' walk from the nearest market town, and we kept seeing this really quite tragic illness that struck down a huge proportion of the men in, in every village. And it was a real example of the legacy of colonialism. And the illness was that in every town, there was this huge proportion of young men that were arsenal fans which is really quite tragic because they had this <laughs> awful belief that one day that their oh, football team Ash, was... you
1: had me there. I was like, what was the illness? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but it was curious. Like, why would you support Arsenal if you live in Uganda? And particularly, it was 2014 when Arsenal were not a very good football team. The reason is, is that when the Premier League went international, Arsenal were the number one team. And also, they had loads of black players. So if you're a young black lad watching the best football league in the world, as it was then arguably maybe it still is, and you saw people that looked like you doing incredible things and it made a connection for you. You could see yourself in that place. And so that loyalty to Arsenal has carried on ever since, um, even though they're now a terrible team. And, and what it did is it gave me a reason to speak to these guys. It gave me an insight into something I'd never considered before. Have you ever heard the phrase you can't be what you can't see? Yeah. So the fact that these young black guys saw black players playing in England... I don't know, they, they thought this is something I could do. Maybe it's driven many young men in Africa to become more, better footballers. Um But it also then allowed me, it broke the ice, allowed me to talk to them about many other things. So be curious about the things that you see, even if it has to be about Arsenal football team.
1: Footballer is such a leveller, isn't it? I mean, I don't support a team, but I always say Chelsea or somewhere like that if, you know, I have to. It, well,
0: it's. I mean, I as much as I say this thing about Arsenal, like, I know nothing about football. I, I played rugby badly but you're exactly you're absolutely right it gives you an an icebreaker
1: yeah I said Chelsea I couldn't think of any other team (laughs) you said Arsenal I've got some rapid fire questions for you Ash you ready on the edge of your seat so what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting out
0: oh I wish I knew that success does not equal fulfilment I think I've beaten myself a lot about not having achieved certain benchmarks that I viewed as success within this career. And I've recently started to reflect on, am I fulfilled without those? Do I need those things? Or am I using other people's benchmarks to set a measure for success for myself? So that's what I wish I knew when I was starting out, that success and fulfillment are not the same thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to reflect on. What is success for the individual?
0: I think for your mental health, that's pretty key, particularly in an industry like journalism and tv where there's a lot of rejection and i think your fuel tank of resilience can be not quite low mm. um and if you are setting yourself unrealistic benchmarks or m- comparing yourself to other people's ideas of success you can be setting yourself up for a difficult emotional time
1: and do you feel like you've been doing that
0: i've been definitely yeah yeah and uh I think I'm very much at a part now where I'm reconsidering what fulfilment in this career means to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you got any answers yet?
0: Do a podcast with Pip Stewart. <laughs> oh,
1: God help us all. Um, thank you, Ash. Is there a place that you'd love to return to?
0: I think it's probably a bit of a cliche, but I love going back home. Uh, Windsor's a great town. I loved growing up there. I was incredibly lucky to go to a state school in a place as beautiful as that. playing rugby, in the Great Park and being able to take my dog for a walk in the countryside five minutes from the centre of town. But also being really close to London, which is really good when I was building my career. But another place I would love to return to is Wanaka in New Zealand. I think it might be the most remarkable place I've ever been. And there's so much you can do there. That's that's something I will love to return to.
1: Yeah, New Zealand is definitely an adventure playground, isn't it? It's a pretty cool place. If you had to give a TED talk about something you're not known for, what would it be and why?
0: I would give a TED Talk about the unmanned exploration of space.
1: I should mention at this point in time, Ash is sat here wearing a NASA jumper.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My uncle, uh, well, close friend of the family who I always called my uncle growing up, used to work for NASA and he would come over on his visits to the European Space Agency. He actually worked for a division called JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and they do all the robotic probes. Voyager 2, Voyager 1. And I remember these amazing stories of Voyager 2 reaching Neptune back in 1989. The exploration of space is often couched in the stories of the Apollo missions to the moon, which were remarkable and incredible missions. But I feel we need to remember that it's the robotic missions that have given us huge knowledge, and in particular, knowledge about Earth. So those space probes that go up there and tell us about our own planet and other places. I'd love to talk about... I'm practically giving you this TED Talk already.
1: Podcast uh, Series 5. Yeah,
0: there we are. That's what I talk about.
1: (laughs) Ash and his space exploration. Cool. Ash, what is a tool or technique that helped you along your journey, career or physical, when things weren't going well?
0: Hmm... So, I touched briefly on the mental health thing. I think having a good support network and seeing a counsellor I found really useful for helping me manage the emotional ups and downs. Exercise has been quite helpful, actually. Um, Joining the Army Reserve was really useful because it gave me a reason to be really fit and healthy. It gave me something to work towards. It gave me a level that I couldn't drop below. And it also gave me something that I could do when I wasn't doing very well in the other areas of my life. And I still regularly like to go back and do stuff with the Army Reserve now because it's nice to be part of an organisation and have colleagues sometimes. But I think my favourite tool or technique for travel is that whenever you turn up in a city, going to the big place of sport and the big place of religion, because those two things tend to embody and symbolise what matters to that culture. So in London, that would be going to St. Paul's Cathedral and one of the football stadiums, probably, or Twickenham. You know, it gives you an insight into the things that matter. You go to India, if you go to Calcutta, you will go to Eden Gardens, which is the massive cricket ground, and you will go to the Durga Temple. That will show you what is India in those two things. You go to Barcelona, you go to the cathedral, like the Gaudi Cathedral, and then you Sagrada Familia, and then you go to the Barcelona football ground. Uh, the camp now so I think that's quite a good tip or technique when you go to places
1: Mm -hmm. sounds wicked ash I'm going to steal those um do you have any recommendations of books films podcasts or any other resources that people can dig into to get more of an idea of the things that we've talked about today
0: well I think the first mile podcast is probably a pretty good start yeah I'd recommend that um Edgelands was a series that I did with the Telegraph it was really well produced by a guy called David Maguire and Greg Dickinson and Pete Norton what they've done there, the way they've taken my ramblings from a journey and turning it into a narrative, I think is a really interesting example of how you can start to think a bit differently about travel. Um, books that have really helped me along my way. I really enjoy the A. Agil books and the way he looks at travel and the reflections it's given him. I think the Michael Palin series, actually I've, yeah, Michael Palin series probably had a significant part in my desire to travel the world, Um, Those would probably be good starts, I'd say.
1: Mm -hmm. And my final question for you, Ash, is what would you be doing if you weren't doing this?
0: I really enjoyed acting when I was at university. That would have been fun. Probably even worse for your mental health when it comes to rejection and so on. I really enjoyed being a school teacher. That was fun. So I think it would probably be something around education, probably science education and probably for a secondary school age group. Mm -hmm. I think teaching is something that will come back into my life again. I
1: can see you being a very good teacher, Ash. Thanks, Yeah. Um, So what's coming up next for you and where can our listeners find out more about you?
0: So the project I'm working on at the moment, I'm looking at a project called Travels at Home. So there's two different elements of it. So it's exploring ideas of what is belonging and identity. And it's related primarily around What does your place of heritage mean to you? Particularly for me as a mixed ethnicity person in Britain, at a time when Britain's identity and ownership of nationhoods is up for grabs, and certainly up for dispute, um, we'll be travelling across India and around Britain. And the journey in India is going to be from Peshawar in the northwest, now Pakistan actually, but it was British India, uh, because that's where one of my relatives, my grandfather's cousin, was arrested by the British in 1915 for trying to acquire explosives to attack British officers and soldiers. He then got put in prison in a place called Cellular Jail in Andaman and Nicobar Islands. So I'll be crossing India from Peshawar, Pakistan, all the way through to Andaman and Nicobar Islands, exploring identity and meaning in India today. Because India is a place where which is... The major political movement in India now is the BJP. It's very much about Hindu nationalism. So I'm intrigued about identity in India as well.
1: God, that sounds absolutely fascinating, Ash. And I just want to say thank you, because that was a really vulnerable, honest kind of look at life in this career. Um, so thank you for that, Ash.
0: Thanks very much, Pip. And if anyone's got any questions, tweet me at AshBardwaj or Instagram at AshBardwaj. And yeah, I'd be happy to answer any questions anyone has. Thank you, Ash. Thank you very much, Pip. Lovely to chat to you
1: thanks for listening to that episode of the first mile we've really enjoyed making this show and we'd love it if more people could hear it so if you have enjoyed that episode please could you do a couple of things to help others find the first mile subscribe to the podcast leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app it really doesn't have to be long Send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested, or simply take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us in it at Ash Bardwaj and at Pip Stewart.
0: Then go and pick your feet up with a nice cup of tea. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on The First Mile. This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure. And we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.